We're going to continue to go in this series and conclude this series on the Lord's Prayer today. And a question I, I kind of want us to consider as we begin today and also close this series is, how dangerous do you think the Christian life is? Do you consider following Jesus to be a dangerous endeavor? If you believe following Jesus to be dangerous, I don't just mean physical, although our minds primarily turn to physical danger when we think of danger. Do you consider it dangerous? And if you do, you probably pray the last line of the Lord's Prayer regularly in your life. But if you're like me, and you were auditing yourself as we're going through this Lord's Prayer, this is probably the line in the Lord's Prayer, I pray the least. And one of the main reasons is maybe I don't consider the spiritual warfare and danger around me as much as I should. C.S. Lewis elegantly presented the danger of temptation in his screw tape letters. If you've never read the screw tape letters, I encourage you to read that as it gives a perspective that is really helpful because we tend to miss that there is danger around us from the perspective of demons as they tempt and distract and ultimately seek to destroy Christians. I came across a modern take, not C.S. Lewis's own writings, but many people over time have taken that same perspective to write modern takes from demonic perspectives on stopping people and trapping people. And I came across uh, a woman who wrote a screw tape letter for the girl trapped in obsessive comparison. Do we consider the Christian life dangerous? And she wrote this from the screw tape perspective. She said, as you know, we can't do much with a woman who knows her worth. Lucky for us, a woman immersed in the lies of our world is an easy target. We must convince her the way others view her is the most important. Help her focus on how often men pay attention to her and how they respond to her. Convince her the way a man looks at her is the measure of her worth. If they do not pay attention, She'll feel deprived and unwanted. If they pay extra attention, looking at her body without respect, she'll get false affirmation. That's a good place for her to be. Wormwood, we know the attention affection of a man can bring her pales in comparison to what her heart really needs right now. If she even gets a taste of her maker's lo true love and desire for her, we've lost footing. So keep the desire for temporary satisfaction of male attention at the forefront of her mind. How dangerous do we consider following Jesus? How dangerous do we see life full of temptation, distraction, and trials? Maybe we're not experiencing in our Christian life victory. Maybe we're not experiencing freedom from temptation and sin because maybe we neglect this very important part of prayer that the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray. Today, as we finish up the Lord's Prayer, we're, we're recognizing that there's a pattern throughout this prayer. And I hope that you've seen this pattern. It begins to shape your own prayer. We start with the Lord. It's about his name, his kingdom, his will. And that's important because we start with that perspective first on him because he's the one we first need. And as we approach him and his name, his kingdom, and his will, then we turn to our needs. And that's important, that structure. 
Then we ask for daily bread, forgiveness, and last deliverance from evil. This prayer pattern teaches us about God and what we need to know about God, what we need in our hearts. But also, it actually teaches us what we need about us. Fundamentally, what do we need most as image bearers? We need bread. We need provision. We need forgiveness. We need pardon. We need deliverance. We need his protection. Provision, pardon, and protection are the things we most fundamentally need. And we're going to look at protection today. Looking at the two lines of this prayer, one at a time, and then kind of drawing some implications for us to consider. First, lead us not into temptation. We'll look at that. Deliver us from evil. We'll look at that and then tie it all together. Lead us not into temptation. At first glance, it may think as you're reading this that we're asking God not to tempt us to sin. But we know throughout scriptures, it explicitly tells us, like in James chapter 1, verse 13, that God does not tempt us to sin. James 1, 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It would be inconsistent with God's holiness to present sin to us, to entice us, or lead us into sin. Notice the prayer does not say, Father, do not tempt me. So we need to understand how the prayer is using the word temptation because scripture presents temptation or that word multiple ways and kind of having those categories helps us. So I'm going to get a little technical here, but maybe this helps us as we think about the word temptation. Sometimes the Bible describes temptation as trials or testing or just circumstances that come into our life. They aren't sinful. Those circumstances aren't sinful in themselves, but they are temptations because they could tempt us to doubt God's goodness. They could cause us to turn away from God and turn to sin. Temptations are broadly suffering, trials, circumstances outside of us that are tempting and trying to us. Sometimes the Bible presents temptation as outside forces enticing us. So it's not just circumstantial, it's actually enticing us, leading us to sin. And think about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Satan is tempting him. The temptation wasn't in Jesus. It was coming outside of Jesus from Satan. He was tempted externally by Satan's suggestions. And so we can think of Satan himself. Or spiritual forces, like demonic forces that tempt and lead us. Or other people in their own sin can lead us into temptation. This is outside forces, not just generally that are trying and difficult. They're actually enticing us to sin. The Bible describes Satan as the ultimate one who does that, working through demons and other people in their sinful flesh also lead us to sin as well. There's a third category of temptation. The Bible describes that temptation comes from within us, not just externally from circumstances, not just externally from personal temptation and enticement, but actually coming from inside. Paul often describes that as our flesh. This is what James means when he says in verse 14 of chapter 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And you know what? Jesus, he experiences everything that we experience in his human incarnated form and his ministry at earth. He didn't experience temptation like this because he was sinless. He was tempted only by circumstances and by other people trying to entice him. We are actually also 
not only tempted by outside circumstances and outside people trying to entice us, but also we deal with the old self, the flesh. And so we know that God doesn't tempt us to sin. And so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, what that really means is lead me away from sin. Do not allow me to, to walk a path of sin. It means leading me away from enticement to sin, guarding me from things I cannot handle. Lead me away from the road that leads to sin and death. This doesn't mean that God won't often allow trials and circumstances to exist in our life, though. We see that example throughout the scriptures, most prominently in the life of Job. He uses circumstances, often tests, but these tests, which also is another word for temptation in the Bible, are not used to tear us down. God allows for tests in our life to reveal, to strengthen, to build up. But the Bible uses the word test and trap in the same way. Because if you think about it, this is helpful to understand temptations, is that tests often can become traps in certain circumstances. I think about teachers who are trying to use examinations, tests, to build up or reveal knowledge that students have prepared. If you prepare and study well, it's a test that reveals and strengthens, not one that traps you because you're unprepared. If it's unprepared, you come to a classroom or examination, it's a trap, not a test. One of the most formative classes I've ever had in my life was in seminary. It was a class on the, the book of Acts and Paul's letters with D.A. Carson, one of the co-founders of the Gospel Coalition with Tim Keller. And he had a way of testing us that was really felt like a trap if you didn't prepare correctly. He gave us quizzes at the beginning of every class. And they started literally on the atomic clock at the exact second the class started. So we all learned to attach our watches and we didn't really have smartphones at the time. And so we really made sure we knew the atomic clock. It literally started at the second class started. And if you were seconds late, you would miss the questions because they were always 20 questions and he would read the question once at the beginning of the class, repeat it once and move on to the next question. And so if you were five seconds late to class, you most likely have missed the first question. He would never go back. This class was covering a massive section of scripture, all of Acts, all of Paul's letters. And then in these quizzes, he would assign massive sections of the scriptures that you were supposed to come prepared for that quiz. And he would assign that to you with the expectation that you would be familiar with the scriptures. And so he would assign us parts of Acts and parts of Paul's letters. And he would ask us questions that are minuscule and random, like what was the name of the gate that the Christians were hanging out at? What are you talking about in this name beautiful? Or what, what, what chapter of Acts were the Christians first called Christians? What are you, what? And you can imagine this kind of questioning, what it would do to the student. You would begin to read the Bible very differently. I knew and I still credit most of my knowledge of Paul's letters and the book of Acts to those quizzes. Because what that did was it forced me to read the Bible differently. For not just having completed an assignment, but to internalize it to know structures of the scriptures, to remember specific details in scriptures. And then as I started to study that way, it tested me and revealed something positive in me. The few times I was seconds late to class, it was a trap because I missed those questions and, you know, got docked in my exam. But tests, 
The scripture often says that God will allow circumstances to reveal. And so you see that with Abraham in Genesis. It reveals his trust in God, his faith in God. Or it could be a trap. Lead me not into temptation means let me see the tests of life as revealing my trust in you, God. Build me up so that as I face circumstances, I would turn to you, not turn away from you. Deliver me from the evil that exists in those traps. Protect my faith in you. Give me spiritual protection. That's what we're praying when we say, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I think, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more in a second, but the word evil there and kind of seeing these as two halves of the same prayer, I often in my own heart, when I say the Lord's prayer, will say the evil one. Uh, because that's how I see it. There is, uh, in a technical way to understand it, uh, there is an article before evil. So it's the evil. And if you look at Greek in that way, it often will def- determine a proper noun. So it often will mean the evil one, which refers specifically to Satan or adversary, the tempter. And that makes a lot of sense in this context. And not just general evil, but it is Satan himself in the many ways that he works through his spiritual forces, through people that he will influence to entice us to sin. That makes a lot of sense to me, especially given Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It was actually not just general evil that was tempting him. It was actually a reference to Satan, the adversary, the evil one. Praying this means, Father, lead me away from the path of sin. Lead me away. Protect me from the devil's snares. It's important as we think about temptation to actually look at Jesus' temptation. Maybe it's a, it's a way to help understand our sinfulness, our flesh. Because the way that Satan tempts and entices Jesus is often the same exact way as he entices every single one of us. Most of the temptations we will face have to do with something in these three categories. Pleasure, pride, and power. Almost every single one of our temptations to, to wander from God come in those categories. Pleasure, pride, or power. I don't have time to look at all three of these in depth. I encourage you to look at them, read about them, understand them, because then you'll understand your own heart. Actually, when you look at these things, it's very easy. The one that you say, well, I, I'm not like that person who struggles with that. Very likely, maybe you have the other issue then. And so I want to look at pleasure, though. And the way that Satan tempted Jesus to pleasure was through bread. And so this is biblical proof that God loves gluten. Unless you're actually a celiac, if you're just doing it for your own sake, I would say God loves gluten. Jesus was hungry. Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread. And something we have to understand about pleasure, not all pleasure is sinful. Just like not all eating is sinful. The issue here isn't Jesus turning stones into bread, ultimately. Jesus could have done that in a way that was God-honoring. He made five loaves into many loaves. So the means of how Jesus does it isn't ultimately the issue. The issue here is, will, you, will Jesus listen to the way of Satan or the way of the Father? Will he pursue pleasure by the way of the Father or by Satan's way? Would Jesus try and satisfy himself by the evil one's will or the father's will? Jesus sought to fight against that temptation to pleasure by actually 
putting in his own heart, his mind, repeating and quoting scripture of a greater pleasure. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 3 in Matthew 4, 4, in that temptation. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says to Satan, I'm not going to get food your way. God ultimately sustains me. God is with me. He fully satisfies. Pleasure takes form in temptation in many different ways. It can come in the form of food. It can come in the form of sex. It can come in the form of leisure. It can come in the form of travel. It can come in the form of stuff. Those things, many of them are good. God has blessed us with those things. Food, sex, drink, leisure, travel, stuff. These things in them of themselves can be good. How will you pursue them? What will you give them in terms of place in your heart? What Satan will do is entice you to pursue those things in the way of Satan's will, not God's will, or use them to distract you from the many things of God. Our pursuit of pleasure, not according to God's will, but the world's will, is what we'll, we'll face over and over and over again. So when we pray, lead me not into temptation, it means take me out of the enticement of the evil one. Lead me away from the failing of my flesh. Strengthen my resolve to trust your will. See, this is why the Lord's Prayer is when we pray together. Because as he fought against the pleasures of Satan and the way he wants it, he fought with it with God's will. Man shall not live on bread alone. But bread isn't the issue here. How will you pursue it? And that's what we're praying. God, would you strengthen me to trust your will? The second part of this prayer, deliver us from evil, or in my own heart, and maybe for you as you're praying this, deliver us from the evil one. Something we need to grasp, maybe why we don't pray this prayer, is that we don't see our life as lived in a spiritual battle. We don't see this life as dangerous. What Paul tells us, maybe we just read this, we're so used to this verse, it's familiar to you if you've been in the church, that we don't realize it anymore. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We read that and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we live life like enlightenment, scientific, objective thinkers who miss everything that is going on in this world. Jesus wasn't just tempted in the wilderness. If, if that was the test and it was over and done, he was tempted every day of his life by spiritual forces against rulers and authorities, against positive powers. He faced that all the way till he breathed his last breath. You and I, every moment of our lives, every day, every breath we take is lived in the context of wrestling, not just against things we see, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. That is every day. Through our lives, this is why we need to learn to pray. Deliver us from the evil one. Look what Peter says about the evil one. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Most of, us have, most of us have never seen lions in the wild. You've only seen them in captivity. If you see a lion prowling in the wild, you are in danger. You are definitely in danger. Satan is waging a spiritual war right now, stopping people from experiencing Jesus, from living on mission for Jesus. He is keeping the church. He is keeping you from bringing the gospel to the end of the earth. He doesn't want the gospel to get out, to save. He, he wants to fill you with insecurity, questioning your involvement in his mission, questioning your involvement in the local church, getting you to believe lies like, look how much you failed. What can you offer? He says that to you, and it stops you from being involved. You're not cut out for this. Those are the lies he gives to you. Satan wants to deceive you into thinking that other people who don't know Jesus, the over 3 billion people in the world who right now have never heard the name of Jesus and don't know how to have salvation, he wants to deceive you into thinking, well, that's not that big of a deal. They know enough about the world, enough about God generally from creation to send themselves to hell forever. And Satan's like, well, he wants us to believe, that's fine. The living a comfortable life is better than risking our lives for the gospel. He wants to deceive us into thinking the things right now in Israel and Palestine, well, that's just far away. It's really not that big of a deal. Do you know how we wage war there as Christians far away? We pray. We pray. And he wants to deceive us in thinking, well, pray doesn't really do anything. And we stop. We stop coming before the Father, asking him, He's deceiving many of you right now into thinking living a comfortable life is the best. If somehow you can have all of the American dream, which is now baptized into Christianity, and say, well, as long as you do that, you're not that bad of a person. You have Jesus a little bit. That's all you need. He's deceived you. He wants to distract you with relationships. How many uh, a friend of mine have been led astray by that guy or that girl who leads them away from Jesus? He'll use your job. A good thing. He can even use, and I've seen this with people who work in Christian ministries, he can use that job to distract you from Jesus. He will use your friends. He will use your phone. He will use your hobbies. He will even use your parents. I often get asked to speak in uh, Chinese-American uh, context to first-generational uh, leaders about the next generation. And I recently was uh, brought in to give a talk on Gen Z, which is individuals born uh, between 1997 and 2012. And as I was giving that presentation, I realized many of the challenges facing Gen Z Christians. It's an amazing generation. I actually think this generation will be better than all of our generations before. Way better. The potential there for better faithfulness to Jesus than millennials, way better. Because I'm like the oldest millennial, probably, because I was born in 1982. And millennials, I think it's 1980, 1981. But I, I have lots of hope. But you know what's going on with Gen Z? Massively distracted. Significantly distracted. Well-connected. Connected to information, connected to each other, and yet more lonely than every other generation before. Why? 
because they're believing certain lies. They're deceived. Generation being sidelined through many things, through the devices, through pornography, even more than we had access to ever in our lifetime. I remember when I was a kid, I'm just being very honest, pornography was hard to get because you had to go to a bookstore and somehow get it from the bookstore, which to me as a little kid was steal it, right? That's harder, right? Now you just have a phone, which is my parents, don't give your kids a phone. I just side moment for a second. Don't give, hold off on giving your kids phone as long as you can. In a phone is more danger than anything else your kids will ever face in their life. Enslavement to screens. Satan is deceiving, luring you into compromising situations. And it's not just Satan, actually. It's our own self that needs to be put off to death. So we just... This is why it's so easy to baptize the American dream and think this is what it means to follow Jesus because I'm at least a good person and pursue the American dream, which is often contrary to Jesus. Pursue the American dream is put your school, your career, your life, your income first. Jesus says, die to yourself. How does that match? It doesn't. And yet we deceive ourselves. This is a battle. This is dangerous for our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is a battle right now in our church, right now as you're listening to this, where there's all kinds of enticements to pleasure, pursuits, possession, many good things that get our heart away from the holiness of God's name, to lull you into sleep and comfort, to deceive you into thinking lies. And Satan doesn't need to lure us into and you know, the American, I'll just use our church, not just generally. Sunset Church. Satan doesn't really need to stop us from the mission of making disciples of all peoples because he can just make us comfortable. Because if we were actually sacrificial in our giving in our lives, we were sacrificial in raising the next generation to live for Jesus, he would be attacking us like crazy. Maybe he doesn't attack us because he's already lulled us to sleep. He's lulling Christians into sleepy, lukewarm Christianity that is content with just church on Sundays, unsacrificial giving, and just a little Bible reading here and there. That's all I need. It is a battle. It is dangerous. Let me connect all this together. We need to pray this prayer. I need to. I, I don't pray this heart of the Lord's prayer enough. And I need to pray this prayer for myself. I need to pray this prayer for you more. Why? Because we don't have the power on our own. It says, deliver us. Israel, as they were enslaved in Egypt, they couldn't save themselves. God needed to deliver them. There can be miracles. They, had needed, they needed Jesus to save them. At that one moment of singing, right? I haven't sung in a while. I think about that's what I loved Prince of Egypt. They're dependent. We we need to pray this prayer because ultimately we are all some of you are in battles you cannot conquer on your own. But many of you are trying to conquer on your own. We need to pray this prayer because part of the battles that we face are battles that we cannot save ourselves from, and we need to ask Jesus to help us. You know, in that, that story in, in Mark, 
in the Gospels when they're casting out demons and then they come across a boy who's have an unclean spirit and they can't, they fail, they can't cast it out. And Jesus says to them in Mark 9, 28, 29, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately after Jesus cast it out. He says, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They're sent out and they, they think just evoking Jesus' name is what is there. But often what we end up doing is using Jesus for our own means and we try and make it into magic and we just say, well, th- just say certain things or do certain things and it'll work. No, it's dependence. It's submission. It's saying, I cannot do it. Friends, some of you are entangled in sin. You are literally today coming to church, walking the path to temptation. And you are being defeated because maybe you want to, maybe you come to church even today because it's an expression, I don't want this, but you're experiencing defeat because you are trying to do it just on your own. You try and overcome it with accountability, discipline, safeguards, all good things, but what is missing is dependence in prayer. Prayer brings you to the power that is greater than Satan himself, Jesus. There are battles that you are facing, church, that you cannot overcome on your own. And you need to pray. You need to ask him. You need to depend on him. You need to posture your body, your heart, your mind. I'm getting my body parts mixed up in strength. All of that towards Jesus. And think about this. What? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How would Jesus not want to? How would the Father not want to answer this prayer? He wants to answer this prayer. I think about it as a, now as a father with little children. When my children ask me to help, how it honors me. How, it, how I always want to help. Think about when my little girls were learning to swim and they asked me, help me. Sayla now, my younger one, who's six, she's now a pretty confident swimmer. But if you knew her between the ages of zero to like three or four even, yeah, four, she was deathly afraid of water. Like we would be like 50 feet from a swimming pool that's like only a foot deep and she started wailing. She somehow has this like sixth sense for the fact that there's water nearby. And she would scream and yell. And when there's early stages, she got past that and she didn't have deathly afraid, but she's still deeply afraid. And she's going in the water, not confident. She would ask me to help her and she would hold on for dear life. Hold me, help me. That honors me. It's not something I hate doing to help her, to protect her from her fear. I took Malia to Disneyland once and we rode the Guardians of the Galaxy ride at California Ventures without knowing what that ride was. I had forgotten what that ride was. And if you've never been to California Ventures, you don't know that ride. That's the old team. I don't know what they called it. Some kind of drop name though. Maybe Demon something drop. What was it called? Tower of Terror. There you go. Which is, you know, it doesn't sound as scary when you call it Guardians of the Galaxy. 
I still argue. We we had the fast pass because I was like, oh, it's only like five minutes. So we went there. We like skipped the line. We're like, we're gonna do this. And I like, oh, then I saw the elevator open. I'm like, oh shoot. That's what kind of ride this is. She's barely tall enough to ride it. I forgot what kind of ride this is. And during the ride, she's holding on to me so tightly in my arm, asking for help. And I couldn't really jump on my seat. She's sitting next to me, but I held her. And so when you got lifted for a second, I'm like, no, get down. I want to help her. When she asked for help, my heart yearns. And I was guilty, and so I tried to buy her a bunch of gifts to placate her afterwards. How much more does your heavenly Father want to help you when you ask for help? How much more will this Father want to help you through your trials, through your temptations, through your tests? Even though this battle against Satan, who's a roaring lion, is there, don't ever think the Bible presents the, the, the battle as some kind of dualism between good and evil. The Bible never presents the battle between evil and good as the Star Wars world, where it's light and dark, or Jedi and Sith. It's never like that. It's never presenting the Bible as equal, opposite, warring forces where we hope good wins. Jesus dominates. Do you realize who you're praying to when you ask him to help, even though we live in the middle of a battle? I love what Isaiah says as Israel's wrestling with the trials that they're facing and they're reminded to find comfort. You know how you find comfort? Behold your God. Look at him. This is what it says, Isaiah 40, about God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. You know what the hollow of your hand is? It's like this. All the waters of the earth, every bit of it, in his hand. That is who we're praying to. Help me. Goes on to say, and marked off the heavens with a span. How many of you ever even, those of you who live in a house or an apartment, ever even tried to measure the, the square footage, the external boundaries of your home. Most of us have never done that. You just trust that, you know, the external boundaries are measured by the appraiser and it's correct and accurate. We've never done that. How do you mark off the heavens? Maybe you were outside of San Francisco yesterday. You saw outside of the fog, the eclipse. How do you mark out the heavens? God does it. Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. We were... You notice downstairs that what used to be like four offices uh, is being taken out because uh, we're trying to utilize spaces a little bit better in our church. And if you've ever looked in there before, it was basically just a storage ground for all the way too many books that us seminarians have to buy. So it just looked like a massive library. And anyway, some of those books I haven't touched in forever. So as we were moving them, like I constantly was like sneezing because like there's just dust everywhere. Right? That's what ends up happening. You leave someone something for a long time. It's dusty. And so you take some of those books downstairs that are for free. Sorry if it's just got like tons of dust on it because it's just been sitting there, some of them. And I, I looked at one of the books and it was so, this is one of the ones I wanted to keep. And I was like, I touched it with my hand and I, my handprint was on it from dust. That's how dusty it was. And it was on its side. So like basically it was stuck to it. And I was like trying to brush it off and there's a bunch of dust. God takes the dust of the earth. Every bit of that dust, all of it, he can measure it. All of it. The mountains and hills, 
He can take all of that and measure it. He can measure it out. How many of us can guess weights of things? We can't even guess that much, right? He can take all of it in the world and measure it out. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So when you pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, you are calling on this God to help you. We need to pray this prayer because he is more than capable of helping. He wants to help, like a father helping his son and daughter. Some of you are entrenched in temptation and sin because you've never asked God to help you. Or you've asked a version of God that is incorrect because you have theologically forgotten who this God is and experientially you have never beholden your God. Because you ask this Father to help you, he will help you. We need this in prayer. We need to pray this, depend on God, because every single day of our lives is in that battle. There's more at risk than just our lives. And it matters. There were two martyrs I read about during the reign of Queen Mary I. Uh, she's the one who uh, we have our modern-day drink called Bloody Mary. And before it was called a Bloody Mary, it's named after a very bloody queen. It was during the kind of the effort to recatholize uh, England, and they, they were killing off Protestants. And they killed 300 people uh, during that time. I read about two of them. They were in prison, about to be burned. She often burned them. One of them, as he was in prison, boasted to the other people, that he was so grounded in his faith that he would never deny God. There was another man who physically was shaking as he was in prison. Afraid of fire, he knew his sensitivity to the situation. He was worried he would deny the gospel because when they presented them death, they would ask death and they would ask them, if you recant, you can live. And so he urged this man who was afraid, friends, to pray for him, crying out to God. He was praying in the, in the prison, and the other man overhearing this chided him for his unfaithfulness. Both came to the stake to be burned. And the man who was confident saw the fires face to face and on the spot recanted. Lived, never professed Jesus again. The man who was deeply afraid, physically trembling, he was praying, lead me not into temptation. And even though he was weak and trembling, the God who he cried out to help, helped him. He sang praises to God as he breathed his last breath. None of us can stand in this alone. We need to learn to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil. Would you take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to speak? Use these words, use the scripture, use that prayer in your heart.